0: Welcome to the CIM Marketing Podcast. The contents and views expressed by individuals in the CIM Marketing Podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the companies they work for. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the CIM Marketing Podcast. And today we're joined by a very popular guest with us for the third time and to celebrate the publication of his third book. And that is Mr. Dan White. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thanks,
0: Ben. And, you know, thank you so much for having me back a third time. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, privileged.
1: And it is your third book, isn't it? The Smart it's Branding Book, doing very well, very popular with marketers, the Smart Branding Book. But here's the thing. Dan isn't with us today to tell us how to do a bit of smart branding. He is here today to tell us how to destroy our brand, which presumably isn't the point of your book, Dan. No it's not it's not the point
0: of the book but it's a nice way i think i hope uh, of illustrating some of
1: the key points in the book because actually it's quite easy to destroy your brand if you don't know what you're doing but but one thing i sort of took from earlier discussions with you is that sometimes we can destroy a brand when we think we do know what we're doing it can sometimes be us thinking we're doing the right thing that can lead us down the wrong path you know they say that the road to hell can very often be paved with good intentions. The mantras that we as marketers often hold dear, you say, can sometimes actually serve to actually damage our brand, not to make it, as your book, Estol, smarter. Yeah,
0: no, that makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of things that people say and do in marketing that, on the surface, make complete sense. You know, they're very intuitively uh, sensible, but they're not necessarily all right. Um, And I'm a big fan of... uh, starting with the data, starting with the academic, robust evidence about the topic to make sure that we're not just doing it because that's the way it's always done. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm going to throw I'm going to throw some at you. I'm going to put you on okay. the spot today, Dan. All right. And I'm going to throw, throw some uh, of these mantras at you and you're going to tell me actually how they can end up backfiring, how they can actually end up destroying our brand in extreme cases. Um, If we don't do them properly. So here we go. Keep your brand fresh and dynamic.
0: Makes sense, I suppose, doesn't it? You know, fresh, dynamic, sounds modern, relevant, etc. But tell me, Ben, when, when you say that, what kind of things might you want to get rid of in
1: order to move on? You know, what what do you mean by fresh and dynamic? New, bright, uh, unexpected, innovative, surprising. And all of those things you just said are excellent characteristics
0: to grab people's attention. So, yeah, when it comes to developing communications, for example, you need to do something new and different to some extent. But quite often, when people talk about refreshing the brand, you know, relaunching the brand, which is a phrase that always gives me shudders. Um, it can often mean changing the logo or the slogan or the brand character or some some other distinctive brand asset. And that is how you can easily destroy a brand.
1: So actually, there are examples, aren't there, of history. I'm sure you can give us some where they've gone down very expensive in prolonged uh, brand refreshes. And what they've actually done is, caused brand confusion or brand visibility. Yeah, and often they have to rewind, you know, reverse their decision.
0: In fact, I mean, I won't, I mean, there are cliches. There are ones that are cited all the time, but it's worth knowing these ones because you learn a lot from them. The Tropicana packaging fiasco in 2009 is possibly the most famous. You know, you have a logo that is very familiar. You have a device with an orange with a straw sticking in it. Which is wonderful because it conveys so much about the naturalness of the product, etc. Suddenly goes overnight, um, and, and the brand suffers badly. Um, and you know, people who you know, would normally have bought Tropicana, they go into the store, they can't find it. They're not going to seek it. P- people overestimate brand loyalty, don't they? So they go, "Oh, I can't find my normal brand. Oh, well, oh, I haven't tried this other brand." For a while, I'll give it a go. And of
1: course, it tastes perfectly lovely, um, and there's a lost customer. People do overestimate brand loyalty. Particularly people doing things which they don't particularly like doing often, which is walking around a supermarket. Well, no, I mean know. you know when you're going around a supermarket, you're usually in a hurry
0: because you have to afterwards. You need to go and pick up the kids, and you've only got half an hour. You know, but you haven't got time to, to to spend too long looking for uh for a brand in fact people don't do that very 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 rarely do they actually actively seek out a brand
1: and it's not easily available yes it's interesting isn't it um okay i'm going to throw another one at you Dan. i'm not going to let you rest on your laurels focus on loyalty among your existing customer base
0: that makes a lot of sense
1: doesn't it i mean they already love you they lo- they they're using you they're a customer
0: make sure they don't go and you'll be fine. But that is a really bad way of thinking. Uh, And actually, we know from the work from Ehrenberg Bass Institute, in every category they've looked at, there is a huge amount of churn of customers. And when you think about it, there, there are lots of reasons that are outside of your control why someone who bought you last time might not buy you next time. I mean, life stage is a big one. You know, as we evolve in, in our life, certain products and categories become relevant, more relevant, less relevant over time. Income is a big one. You know, we can buy the deluxe brands, but if we lose our job, things change. You know, there are always factors that drive that. And, and, and especially in the competitive market, um, it's quite easy for a competitor to grab someone's attention and, and for, for um, them to switch their allegiances. In fact, there wasn't much allegiance to start with. It was more just to to buy the other one because it sounds good. So you will always uh, lose a certain proportion of your recent buyers um, over time. And if you don't keep topping up that leaky bucket, your brand will decline. And the evidence is so clear.
1: Temple demographics often work against you if you're you're trying to rigidly hold on to your uh, existing customer base people grow old they become richer they become poorer uh, yep. they, some of them some of them leave us entirely uh, without putting too fine a point on it and actually you you've got this analogy of a leaky budget there is a desperation to hold on to what we have you're saying can sometimes preclude our efforts to actually get hold of new stuff well yeah because sometimes you can't hold on like you said there are factors beyond your control
0: that means you can't always cling on to your people who bought you recently so you're going to have to continually make sure that you have more people attracted and and aware of your brand that come into your
1: brand so holding on to your loyal customer base
0: it's a dangerous it- assumption yeah it's a really dangerous way of thinking in, in in almost in almost every case actually yeah
1: yeah this one surely you don't have a contrary answer for it sounds absolutely obvious but i'm going to give it you anyway okay maximize the return on investment from your advertising sounds good of course who doesn't want to get the maximum return from whatever
0: they invest in their advertising but Ben do you know what the best amount to spend is in order to maximize the ROI from
1: your advertising um I am going to, because I know you better than I should, yeah, I, I'm going to have a crack at this. Is it zero pounds and well, zero pence? Well, no, well, well, you're close. <laughs> you're close. It can't, no,
0: come on, it's a return. It can't be zero. That's mathematically impossible. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. A penny. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the best return you can possibly get is to spend as little as possible because, you know, okay, there are some nuances, but essentially the more you spend... As you spend more, you get a diminishing return. You know, there's a bit of nuance early on in the curve, you know, when some econometricians believe one thing and some believe others. But but generally, if you spend more, the later spend has less of an incremental effect than the earlier spend on on all key dimensions. This fundamentally means if you want to maximise your ROI, you spend very, very little, but your brand is likely to to suffer as a result. That leads us to the concept of,
1: you know, how to set
0: uh, an appropriate marketing budget.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, this curve, isn't it? What you're saying is you get an explosion at the beginning of your initial expenditure, because you go from zero to something, and that leap is significant and noticeable. Then, of course, as economists will always say, the law of diminishing returns kicks in. So the more you spend, the additional... Uh, gain you get slowly diminishes per pound spent but i'm gonna before you go to explain to me about setting the right budget Mm. what i was thinking is well yes but god is in the margins isn't it when you're talking about taking an edge in business you've got to get somewhere high up that curve presumably so you can beat your competitors with that small edge because everybody else is doing the same thing
0: yeah that that is the key point it's about the
1: competition you
0: know I, i think that the the learning from Binet and Field is crucial here, and I know we've touched on this before, which is that, you know, as a really rough rule of thumb, if you want to maintain where you are in an existing market, an existing brand in an existing market, uh, your share of spend has to be roughly in line with your share of market. If you spend less than, if the ratio is lower, um, you are likely to decline, and if it's higher, you are more likely to grow. So already you know Your maximum ROI, which would be a lower spend almost in every case, would probably kill your brand because your competitors will outspend you.
1: Yeah. So while you're counting your high levels of return on investment, you're slowly but surely losing market share until eventually you might go bust. Exactly. So maximizing your return on investment is a good way of destroying your brand. You heard it here first. Well, Ben, this
0: is feeling more and more like Room 101 the more we go on.
1: But, but it is sort of a Room 101 for marketers, isn't it? Yes. it is. We're being asked by uh, uh, financial directors and so on and so forth to do all of these things. and We're trying to make a case back as marketers, as marketing departments, or even as marketing agencies as to why we shouldn't uh, approach things in this yeah. way. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It's, we, room 101 can be useful because it tells us what not to do. Um, I'm going to stick with advertising for a little bit and um, come to another mantra that we often hear um, spend an advertising that shows clear sales responses you know that shows clear conversions from the advertising that to me sounds like the height of logic and common sense
0: yeah in other words spend on what you can prove has worked you know you've got some very clear evidence you spent the money you got this sales return focus on whatever that was yeah. There is a big problem, though, um, with that way of thinking. Um, and that is because it's about short term versus long term. You know, if if you go by that mantra, you would always continue to invest most of your money in what I guess most people call activation advertising, advertising that's often near the point of sale, um, that triggers existing brands' uh, memories. Um, and get you to actually buy it. There and then that increases your sales. And it, it you know, you get that good sales response. So you say, well, I'm gonna put all my money into doing that kind of advertising, which is often, you know, quite quick, quite short exposures, things that just leverage or what's the word, capitalise on existing mental structures
1: that you've built over years for your brand i'm getting mental images of your saying. So i'm thinking of that the, the dominoes campaign where they advertise just before the start of a football match to say yeah. order now to get at half time yeah. that's the ultimate example isn't yeah. it they it's want an perfect. immediate return yeah
0: yeah and if they do a quick yodel at the end even better just to remind you oh yeah i like them they're good <laughs> you know yeah. exactly um, well, the pizza brands are, of course, available, I should say. But anyway. Um. Um, but the trouble is that kind of, you know, short exposure advertising, it doesn't add to the um, the, the mental connections for your brand. It doesn't, you know, strengthen them or, or add a new layer and make your brand more memorable for years to come. So what it's really doing is leveraging and exploiting the the brand associations that are already in people's heads. But it's not adding to those. It's not increasing them, it's not building building them, which is fine in the short term, but in the long term, it means the brand is going to be less memorable and less able to, to generate those sales in the first place.
1: Yeah, so you've got to do the groundwork in order for the instant stuff to work, essentially. It,
0: exactly, and in fact, it can take years or uh, and a lot of money to build those kind of, what we call them, distinctive brand assets. And it's those distinctive brand assets and memories about the brand that you can then leverage in your activation so you have to do the two and, and um the rule of thumb and it, it is only an average if you like but it's still useful i think is that um from binnett and field again suggesting that the optimum ratio for the longer term is to have about 60 percent
1: on brand building and only 40 percent on the activation side right so that's interesting so when you're next told as marketers to make sure you're only spending on advertising that shows clear and instant conversion rates remember that Dan's words there that actually that should be probably only about 40 percent of what you're doing um, and the rest is brand building. Uh, ben just it's, it's worth saying that of course for the brand building side of it you
0: are taking a little bit of a leap of faith because you can't measure its effect quickly you have to wait a year or two or more it's like sometimes to be able to establish the long-term effect that you did have so there is an element of
1: um, taking on faith Interesting. Interesting. Which, of course, is sometimes what we as marketers have to struggle with in our organisations is that sometimes we're not able to prove, certainly not instantly, that what we're doing is going to have effect. But that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. No. And there are still things you can do that to illustrate the kind of things we're doing. Are
0: The characteristics are um, connected with. The kind of activity that does work in the long term. So you won't be able to prove it through econometrics yet, but you know that this is where market research can be very powerful. It's say yeah, but it's ticking all the boxes that are highly correlated with long term success. So research becomes very powerful
1: uh, as part of the business case. There's some really good insights there about mantras about advertising and how they can destroy your brand if you're not careful. Let's move on to a different topic. Avoid innovations that cannibalize your most profitable products. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if
0: you're making money out of certain other products, why on earth would you introduce something completely new that would cannibalize all of that? But of course, there is was always a but, your competitor might. In fact, in a competitive market, your competitors will at some point, probably, you know, almost certainly discover what it is that you've uh, hidden on the carpet. In fact, there is a very famous case example of this the, the most famous of all is kodak kodak yeah. kodak a brand well the brand it did die it has res, been resurrected in a new guise but it did go bust uh, a while okay.
1: ago I, um, should, I should say for people who don't know me because they may not have seen me or heard me is that i'm of a i'm of a vintage of a generation to which kodak was a massive brand and some of our younger listeners dan i dare say may not have heard of it but in back in the days in the eighties and it, it was 80s, 80s, 70s, 80s. And 80s. It was the biggest photographic brand. They were the they were the top 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 dogs when you went and got your uh, films for your cameras and therein of course lies the tale, films for your cameras. And yeah. it went to a period where they now is it fair to say Dan, much less known. Well, all, all, well it, it almost extinct but came back in a slightly different
0: guys. Yeah. Actually there's a bit of a tale here, but my my mother um, no longer with us, sadly. But my mother worked in the Kodak shop. There were actual shops all around the country, Kodak shops, and um, keen photographers like my dad would um, go to these shops and they'd spend a lot of money on buying films, uh, different types of film, you know, you know, um, old-fashioned films and slide films to put in their cameras. Um, and they'd also go back to buy paper so that they could print produce prints either at home or, 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 credit would do that for you and all the chemicals, um, that requires. And that's where credit made all their money from the, the films, the paper and the chemicals. They were essentially a, you know, it would be like ICI, you know, they made, um, Oh, again, a brand that no one's heard of. Sorry, sorry, Ben. <laughs> yes.
1: No, 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 no. This this is great because it kind of is... I think it's going to prove the point that you're about to make is that these mega brands, and Kodak, I think it's fair to say, well, a mega brand. Huge, Huge brand. All around the world, yeah. And you're going to tell us what happened now for people don't yeah. know the story. Exactly. So what happened
0: was, in 1975, um, one of Kodak's engineers called Steve Sasson, he invented... Uh, what is essentially the digital camera so they had an R&D department like all big companies should have you know to think about the next big thing in their area and he came up with the camera and he and he, um, he took this prototype uh, this concept to the management of Kodak at the time in, se- in 1975 and of course they thought this was amazing and ingenious but they told Steve not to tell anyone about it um, essentially because they said, well, if this takes off, we will make no money from our, our film, our paper and our chemicals. So it was buried. But of course, we know, you know, the rest is history, as they say. Um, companies like Canon and Nikon, uh, it, you know, soon after that, also discovered uh, and, uh, this, this, this idea of, of a dig- digital photography.
1: Um, and of course, now those brands actually dominate the photography market. So there's a really interesting paradox here, because my original question to you was to avoid innovations that would cannibalize your most profitable product. And of course, what happened with this this Steve chap, he did the opposite of that because he innovated something which he knew would cannibalize his product and then took it, took it to his bosses. And they said to him, no, you will cannibalize our product, which at that point perhaps seemed like a logical tactic if not a strategy but what you're saying is that the trouble is that somebody else is going to invent it down the line in which case it was code's competitors they will they will um,
0: blockbusters that's another example made a lot of money out of their their rental market you know um vhs and dvd rentals from stores um, but netflix came in with a streaming service that did something similar in a very different very different way a disruptive model um, and and that's the kind of disruption that can change the, the 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 fate of a brand. And of course, Blockbusters. I don't I don't think it has come back in any guise, has it? Anyway, I'm pretty sure it's no more. Um, there are lots of examples, but actually, weirdly enough, Netflix uh, all, had already pivoted its business before that. It used yeah. to do DVD postal rentals as a yes, I remember. I yeah, I remember. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so they did that, but they realised there was an opportunity to use. Uh, the technology to disrupt
1: the whole market and they succeeded of course. So what this is a story about disruption is if you discover something that will disrupt your own business don't try to hide it away embrace it and run with it patent it because somebody else is going to discover it very I, soon after and do it to you. I'm actually very proud of
0: something I was involved in when I worked at Cantor. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, uh, Kantar, one of their biggest sellers, most successful products, is the pre-testing system called Link, advertising pre-testing system called Link. And we realized that you could do a a, a fully automated version of this using new technologies, um, which would bring down the, the cost and the price dramatically. It wouldn't be as good in terms of the depth that you can provide through a lot of human artistry, but it it was a disruptive technology, and I'm proud that I was one of the champions to to push that technology so that we did it rather than um, being taken over by competitors that did it back in the day. So that's a, a good example. I used to I used to joke and say, you know, cannibalism. Like right? people would say, oh, we can't do anything if it cannibalizes, and I said, don't you use the c word? Uh, it's not that funny, I know, um, but it made an impact. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, it's cannibalism, cannibalizing yourself is probably what you have to do if there's a new technology that someone else um, could could to use against you.
1: You have to do it because then you're going to be the one that adopts it and you're to get the first mover advantage. Exactly. Why, why give the first mover advantage to someone else? And if that
0: means you have to reshape your business, then you have to reshape your business. It's going to happen anyway. You might end up having to be a smaller company, at a higher margin using this
1: new new business model, but that so be it. You, that's business. And sometimes it's just an interesting. Point this, isn't it? Because sometimes, presumably, as a user of a legacy technology, or, or as a successful user of a legacy technology, you are presumably very well placed to disrupt because you know what the the, the new the disruptive technology needs to be able to do to compete. Yeah. You know better than anyone else. You you, you know the market,
0: and also you probably have more. Uh, existing customers who would be quite happy to to be exposed to this better way of doing the thing and very glad that you came to them with it so that was my pitch i used to go to clients and say i can you know help you do something almost as good as you used to do for a third of the price does that sound good and they went i like you, <laughs> you know? um, and i'll stick with you because that's exactly what we want our our partners to to do to bring Better ways of doing business to us. Uh, otherwise, we'll move somewhere else.
1: So there you go. There's a contrarian site from Dan White. Cannibalise your own products. Cannibalise, of course, always. Make, <laughs> make make a rod for your own back. Shoot yourself in the foot. Choose <laughs> your own idiom All of these things sound ben, bad, but are good. No, ben, you're going too far. But yeah, I I, I, I like your sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> I like going too far. I like going too far. Um, this one, I'm sure you're not going to have a small answer for, Dan. Um, it sounds, you know, it, it is pretty obviously correct, as far as I can see. But I'm going to give it a go anyway. Build brand sales early on and focus on profitability once your brand is established.
0: Well, it kind of makes sense. And there is one big factor that means that that could work. There is one, which I guess you call economies of scale, right? As in. As you build your business and get more and more users, and more and more, produce more and more of your product, if it is a product, or or deliver your service wider, you you could quite often enjoy economies of scale, and, and yes, that that I guess makes sense. But the thing is, if you um, well, it's the data. You you've got to look at the data. There was an amazing paper that came out about a year ago called questioning the growth dogma a replication study Um, I won't try and pronounce the two authors but it came out in uh, February 2022 okay and it basically it, it was a huge study and it backs up other academic studies that says that actually brands that start off with low profit and just grow 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 very very rarely end up being star performers in other words They rarely become high-profit, high-growth brands. However, brands that start off high-profit in a a small, contained way have a much better chance of then expanding. And I think it makes sense to me in that if you've got something wonderful that a group of people, a small group of people to start with, think is incredible and are prepared to pay for, you know, you're making a high um, profit because you can charge a high amount, you know, you're making a big margin, then if you can then scale that often geographically that's the most common way of scaling you're on to winner you know you start in a a small part of one town ben and jerry's did this by the way they started off in in a a town and then they went to the next town and then they went to more towns and then they went across the us and then they went to europe and then they went global that's a brilliant way of doing it because you know you've got something people that that's special that people will pay a premium for the other way around is really risky because it could be you're Rapid growth is only because you're too cheap. You know? yeah, you're, yeah. Giving it, you're giving it away.
1: And, All free is the case with many techs, absolutely. of course. Yeah. exactly.
0: At the moment, weirdly enough, I'm obviously enjoying chat GPT, which is currently free, and I'm trying to make hay while it is, is still free. But at some point, you know, and, okay, there are exceptions. Maybe, maybe that will be the exception. We will wait and see. But, yeah, I, generally, you need a model that has worked at a small scale um, and then expand it. I mean, uh, my favorite. I know it's I know it's an overused example, but Dove is incredible. The Dove brand, between 1957 and 1995, that's 38 years, they start basically with one product, the bar, the cleansing bar. Yep. They yep. took it from the US, to Europe and global. Same route. And it wasn't until no- 1995 that they expanded into other areas. But the
1: cosmetics, other cosmetics. Yeah, other
0: uh, shower gel was for shampoo, then yep. geode, and so on. Yep. Like and again, still amongst the same target audience, mainly mainly women, yep. but they, they did it geographically because they made a good profit from the cleansing bar. And that funded the expansion, and it funded the uh, R&D into shower gels and shampoos. And it wasn't until, I think it was 2010, when they actually started to attract a new target audience, which is Dove Men and Care was the brand. Right. Yeah, and then... 2017, it was Dove Baby, yeah. So, but 38 years making one thing, yeah. selling one thing, uh, very profitably because it's brilliant, yeah. because it doesn't dry your skin like soap can or whatever the original phrase was, and all the others since then. um
1: It works. It works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another other great soap or cleaning bar are available there as well too. But it, <laughs> uh, it's a great example. It is a great, great example. Um, we we talked about techs i mean the techs are ex- a, a, a sort of a, a big big player example of this where it's all about market share market share market share and not profit and then of mm. course what happens with lots of techs mm. is that before they ever make a profit something else comes along to replace them the only money they've ever generated is investor revenue rather than sales revenue exactly and there's a big shift now and
0: I'm, I'm, I'm i don't know enough about the business side to be i Really, honest. There are experts out there who do, which is it's to do with the cost of borrowing money that has gone up dramatically recently. So maybe that model would work for startups in previous years. It just won't work anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a really interesting one. So yeah, don't 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 believe the hype about going for market share, building your brand when it's not profitable. Profit is a good thing. I once edited an accountancy magazine. Yeah. Turnover. Is vanity and profit is sanity. And oh, course, oh I like that. Can I write that down? That is, I'm going to use that. I love that. Thank it, you. It, it is one of the mantras of the accountancy profession, and actually, it's a it's a good one to, to to live our lives by in in, in other sectors too. Um, Dan, we're coming close to the end of our time, and I want to remind our readers about. Uh, the Smart Branding Book, which is great. You'll find lots of great examples of this sort of stuff we've been talking about today in the book. Um, but telling you how to do good things for your brand, not destroy them. Um, before we go, though, I'm going to throw one more into you, which is one that's a. It, it always it always plays on my mind. Working for a global uh, company, and it's someone that anyone who works in a global space probably grapples with. Um have consistent global brand advertising is one thing that we're told is it right it can be i think the word
0: global is a problem there i think you can have consistent multi-country advertising if the countries you're talking about have enough uh commonality in terms of culture uh, uh, the, the kind of advertising that they respond, that people in that country respond to, and that the category has enough similarity in in how it's used, and and that the local competitors, yes. So that does make sense, but global is really hard. Um, yeah. I, I did I worked with Ogilvy. Um, it was a long time ago now. It could could be twenty years now on a, a huge analysis of global advertising. So we basically looked at the same, if the same ad had been used in multiple countries, we looked at the correlation between our performance of that ad across countries. And we found that, I, I, it sticks in my mind, I remember France and Spain had the highest correlation. So if an ad works well in, in Spain, it's likely to work well in France and vice versa. Yeah. Right. And I remember connections between UK, Netherlands, US and Canada were, you know, broadly similar. Um, the Dutch had a crazy sense of humour, which the Brits kind of half got and the US didn't. But apart from that, yeah. um, you know, apart from some humour changes, it, those things worked. But there were some countries that were just on their own. Yeah.
1: You know? um,
0: the one that had, I, I remember it had a zero correlation with any other country was Japan. You know, famously insular Literally and metaphorically, it's, it, it, um, you know, if an ad worked well in Japan, you'd have no idea if that would work anywhere else and vice versa. So, so I always used to recommend to my clients, you know, if you're going to do a, a global campaign, one of the countries you're going to need to test in is Japan, you know. Um, but France and Spain, no, pick 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 one of them, the, your bigger market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think you, I learned a lot about what does transfer across countries and cultures and and what doesn't um so it's one of these 50 50s you know you can do multi-country campaigns but it's very very difficult to have an ad that works well everywhere
1: it's interesting isn't it you know know where there are cultural commonalities and accept that global is very difficult i mean that's (laughs) a great line to to finish on i mean there's been some really interesting uh busting of mantras and perhaps uh, receive wisdom in the marketing sector. And actually, if you want to learn more about how to build your brand really well, I'll say it again. Uh, the Smart Branding Book by Dan White. I do commend it to you. I absolutely love it. It's got great lessons and great diagrams and do- drawings in there, which will stay with you. Yeah, I'm very proud of the book. Um, but if you don't want to spend you know,
0: £9.99, you can go to my website. I'm very, very proud of my website. It's, it's at smartmarketing.me. And um, most of my illustrations and frameworks are available there for free. People can use them. As long as they credit me, you know, you don't even have to ask my permission. Um, So, you know,
1: that's proved very popular. So if you want to use that, please feel free. That's a great takeaway, a great resource to learn more about some of the things we discussed today. How to destroy your brand and how not to destroy your brand and build a smart brand. Mr. Dan White, he's here today with us. It's been fantastic. Dan, please come on again. It's been great having you, sir. Thanks, Ben. Thanks.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the CIM Marketing Podcast on your platform of choice. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear your feedback.
1: CIM Marketing Podcast.